Imagine an education system where every child, regardless of their race, religion, gender, zip code, or any other characteristic beyond their control, had the same opportunity to be successful in life. Today, we revisit a conversation with a guest who has spent his entire career working towards exactly this mission. And welcome to episode 38 of the Education for a Better World podcast. I'm Mike Soskel. And I'm Diane Smokorowski. Each week, we will bring you conversations with some of the most dynamic thought leaders in education. This week's episode is sponsored by GoToScience, a tool that allows our youngest learners the opportunity to learn by going on adventures without leaving their classroom. We know that education will be the driving force for a bright, optimistic future. On each show, We'll introduce you to innovative ideas, we'll stretch your thinking, and help you see ways to empower students to affect positive change in the world. We are thrilled that you are coming along with us on this journey. Let's dream big. Josh Parker believes in helping people and solving problems. Throughout his career in education in the Baltimore, D.C. corridor, He's had the opportunity to serve students and teachers from kindergarten through graduate school. He is driven to create schools that achieve excellence for all students, especially students of color. Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. So, so appreciative to be on with you. So Josh, why don't you start by telling us what is your passion in education? My passion in education is equity for all. And, and that term is a little hackneyed at this point. Um, the newest term, I guess, is, is anti-racist education. Uh, but for me, uh, it's really about quality teaching for all kids, especially students of color. Josh, I like to call you a teacher Yoda. You, you drop <laughs> words of wisdom quite often. When I get to listen to you speak publicly or read things that you've done, I'm, I'm highlighting, I'm taking notes. You inspire me as well as so many people. But I'm curious. What educators before you have also inspired the work that you do? I think my first educator, and thank you for those kind words, Diane, because you inspired me as well. So thank you. Um, I think the first educator that I've had was my mother. And so she, uh, as all mothers who are awesome, my mother was a school teacher for many years. My dad's Sunday school teacher. And so they inspired me because they always talked about the value of education and put me into situations where I would have to understand that for myself. The first thing I think about is I was a little child, had to be no more than nine or 10 years old, and my mother and father entered me into an oratory contest. And so I can remember having on a little suit and, you know, and had the, the tie and everything. It was a clip on, of course. And I can remember being in front of a little crowd, and the first words of my speech were, uh, without a vision, the people perish. And I forget everything I said after that. But in in that particular scene where uh, I was in front of people and speaking uh, and talking about things that I believed in, I knew that at some point that would be a part of what I was going to do. Uh, a few years later, I went down to Memphis, which is where my family is from. And I shook the hand of one of my father's friends, who was a woman, and uh, she said, she just kind of shook when she shook my hand and she kind of stepped back a couple of inches and she looked around at my dad and my dad's other friend. And she said, 
you're supposed to be speaking in front of people like thousands of people believe me like that's going to happen i see it and i just want to tell you like that's what's going to happen and so i've had teachers and unseen hands and seen hands all along the way that have inspired me to be in the position that i am now which is speaking to people both um you know in small groups thousands and in other venues about why it is so important that we uphold our responsibility to all students. You mentioned what you're passionate about and that uh, we need equitable outcomes for all. What are some of the things that are standing in our way? I mean, not to allude to the new Jordan Peele movie, but us, <laughs> um, I, I think we are. And so, and when I start with us, this is where conversations can turn a bit uncomfortable because no one ever wants to be called out for anything. But when I say us, I'm talking about me too, right? I'm talking about how all of us participate in a system that strategically and systematically disadvantages students of color. And how to the degree that we can realize our participation in such a system is the only degree to which we can stop participating in it. And so the barrier standing in our way first is us, our own realization of what our racial histories have been and how that informs the work that we do, whether we have students of color in front of us or not, uh, the ways in which when we have opportunities to learn more, to expand, or even to teach that class that nobody else wants to teach or to teach in that school district that nobody else wants to teach in, the ways we avoid those um, choices and make our own to be um, insulated from those realities starts to really become a barrier because we are the ones that can change the system. I think another barrier is that the way things are now where students of color don't really get the advantages that everyone else gets, it works for a lot of people. Like the system, a lot of people say the system is broken, but I believe that the educational system is actually working at peak efficiency as it results to um, students of color because every system is designed perfectly to get the outcomes it's getting. So people have to realize that the system is not flawed it's working well, we have to actually break the system and remake it in such a way where all kids get the same opportunities to excellent education. So the first barrier would be us, our own lifestyles, our own realizations of our participation into this inequitable um, system. The second barrier is the system itself and our understanding of the system, thinking that it's broken, when we actually do need to break it and redesign it. Um, the third is, sort of this collective understanding as to what our ethical addition and in addition to moral duty is to teaching. I worked on a um, worked on a system or a code of ethics for educators, the model code of educator ethics with NASDAQ and Instoy a few years back. And when we were in when we first convened together, I remember it almost like yesterday. Dr. Troy Hutchins, who's, uh, who works on this and is a subject matter expert on the topic of ethics, said, there are many fiduciary uh, positions, like counselors, like doctors, like um, those that are in banking, that actually have a code of ethics that governs their conduct. Teachers don't have an accepted model code. And so there, is not, there are no principles beyond law uh, or beyond our own personal morality that collectively governs what we should be doing with kids. And in the absence of that, you have this slippery slope um, and you have this kind of unmarked gray area where scandals happen, 
where miseducation happens because we don't have a collective set of principles, a code of ethics that we all agree to. So in the absence of that, along with our own uh, biases and issues and our understanding of the system, those three barriers work together to create a very strong boundary between what we are doing now and what we actually need to be doing. So powerful to stop and reflect, consider, communicate, dialogue, mm -hmm. reflect again. Yes. And through that reflection, what are some questions that teachers should be asking themselves? That's a really good question. Um, I, and I think after reflecting and dialogue and communicating, of course, uh, there's, there's action after that, but that has to, but action has to come after you've surfaced to your point, what actually is really going on. And so some of the questions that I have asked and I've asked myself is, um, why, why do I react in a way that excludes certain kids from quality education? Number two, how have I contributed to the lackluster educational progress of the students in my building? Number three, what are the habits that are disrupting my principles? I've heard it said uh, in business that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think habits eat principles for breakfast. Uh, and in that, in that sense, even if you believe that all kids can learn, what are your habits telling you? And if we do an investigation as to what, what are the habits that I'm doing, what are the things that I do unconsciously that are at odds with my principles, I can surface that contradiction, or you might want to use hypocrisy, but I think a kinder term is contradiction or dissonance, and I can be able to start to piece together how I can have what I call instructional integrity. This idea that my principles and my habits are in alignment to produce the outcomes within students that I say that I believe. So those are the questions that I, I would ask myself as an educator and that I have asked other educators. And then the, the last one that I think is, all of them are productive, but this one is propulsive, moves us into action, is what information do I not know? Or what information do I need to know to contribute to a system where all kids are learning well? So once you reflect on your role and you reflect on your own habits, then you reflect on essentially what do I need to know, right? And I think that's, those are the questions that can really surface some positive action. I wanna ask you, a lot of times when we've been together, you have talked about your passion for making sure that our young men are mm -hmm. getting what they need in the system. Can you talk a little bit about how we can serve our boys better? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting, um, it's an interesting topic to speak on because it's something that I have experienced myself. There's a lot of talk right now um, in public uh, about barriers and walls and those sorts of things. What I'd like to, to say is that we are constantly building walls between us and boys of color and boys in general. Um, and then these walls at times can become prisons and boxes where boys not allowed to be their full selves in an educational context. The reason that I got into education as a male of color was to be what I didn't see myself. And while um, I went to school in a predominantly African-American district, 
I really did want to see what I didn't experience myself. And so one of the things that we can do for our boys is to have more males of color that are in the buildings that look like them. But in addition to that, it's not just having males that look like them, but it's having qualified males that look like them and that can teach them well. Um, in addition to that, of course, uh, there are women that make up the, the uh, profession. So I, the second thing for boys is to have, if it's not gonna be a male in front of them that can teach them well and understand them, then we need to have females that can do that too, right? And so we don't wanna leave out 82% of the teaching population because everybody is welcome to, to, to be a solution to this. The third thing I can say is to, to attempt to understand the ways in which we make boys make choices between who they want to be and who they have to be for us. So understanding that tension. So a boy who may have a lot of verve and energy might be all around just running around, like examine how we make them fit into what we want them to be versus what they can do that's not harming anybody that's outside of what we expect. And that's, that's a growth area. It was something that I struggled with um, as a teacher because, you know, because I'm so set in the mindset that sitting and getting is the right way to learn something, then I would make boys who cannot sit for a long amount of time, at least the ones that I taught, conform to that. And in doing so, they had to consistently fit into a box and a box and a box over time, and which stripped them of their authenticity. And so we can't build walls between us and boys. And those walls are made up with bricks of misunderstanding, of trying to make them conform to what we believe the prototypical student should look like, and not taking time to get to know them on a personal level. We have to tear those down by doing the opposite of that. So I think those are some of the things that can help our boys. Additionally, I'm gonna tell you, realizing that boys, and this sounds real weird, but are emotional creatures. I can think of um, the first time that I interfaced with English and began uh, just a love affair with it, was when I was introduced to Langston Hughes as a kid in, in Miss Dew's English class, it was 10th grade. And we went over this period of literary, uh, of literary uh, amazing uh, works called the Harlem Renaissance. And I can remember in that 10th grade class, like, well, I never have seen emotion expressed like this. And that emotion connected with me. And, and that emotion connecting with me allowed me to continue to develop and understand that I had emotions and passions just like anyone else. And so um, realizing that boys are emotional creatures and we get hurt, we get scarred, uh, we feel pain and trauma. And even though we don't express it in similar ways, like that's real for us. And um, for us to be seen by adults in that way is powerful. You know, you, you mentioned Langston Hughes. Wow, <laughs> it's one of the best. But it also reminded me of something that our friend Monica Washington uh, shared last summer about creating a master class to diversify the canon of literature. Sure. And as an English teacher, mm-hmm. you've, you obviously were working ways to try to bring ideas for boys to be passionate. And I see this change for the canon, the traditional canon of literature mm-hmm. is shifting, not just in high school, I'm seeing the shifts happen in K-12. Sure. How do you see that shift coming and what trends are you noticing? 
Yeah, that's, that's a really good observation. I'm glad you bring up our, our, our good friend and sister, Monica Washington, who is an amazing advocate. Uh, she, is, she is an amazing advocate for equity, someone I love very dearly. Um, I think I see the trend continuing because our country is becoming more diverse. There, there are more black and brown kids that are gonna be in the school system than ever, and that's gonna only increase. So, you know, I think there's a reason that this diversification, if you will, is happening K through 12. We're also seeing that uh, in entertainment. We just had a black Spider-Man. <laughs> you know, these things are happening, right? An amazing movie. Um, but these things are happening everywhere because of who are the type of people and kids that are populating our classroom. So I see that continuing. Um, I do want to express not caution, but something that I think is important to realize too. Um, I think we can consistently, we definitely need to consistently disrupt what traditionally is seen as the canon. But much of our world has been shaped by texts, and I think that needs to be valued as well. I wouldn't want uh, any student, whether they be uh, Black, White, uh, Latina, Latinx, I wouldn't want any of them to go through high school without seeing a foundational document or one of the founding documents of our Constitution or to have any experience with Shakespeare. I know there's some that you know, think that all of it should go away. I'm not one of those people. I think that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I think we can cover uh, diverse authors and current contemporary authors like Jason Reynolds, like others. And we can still cover foundational texts that shape the way that our country has been formed, but also how it operates. And that are special texts. One of my favorite texts to teach and also to read is Animal Farm. I wouldn't want that to be erased from the canon. I think the, the themes of tyranny and oppression are sort of timeless themes and George Orwell is such a great writer. And so I do think that it's gonna continue. I do see that trend happening K through 12, but also in the media with Black Panther and other um, pieces that are coming in there. But I, I do want us to still hold some of the seminal documents um, that has contributed to uh, the making of America and also democracy. I think those are important to hold on to as well. Josh, I want to step back to something you mentioned before, uh, diversifying our teacher force. Sure. Uh, the last time that I looked at data for Pennsylvania, I think it was 2017 data, might have been 2016, Pennsylvania gave out over 4,000 teaching certificates, which is significantly down. We have a teacher shortage. But out of those 4,000 certificates, uh, less than 30 were black men. And I know whether it's men or whether it's just teachers of color in general, we have a serious issue with the diversity in our teaching force. So can you talk about how we could possibly start to turn that around? So what's interesting, and, and that's, a, that's a mind blowing stat, Mike, um, it, it's, it, you could spread it across the, the whole country so that, that stat makes sense. It's just staggering to hear it. I think one of the things we have to think about with attracting black men is to one, give them a voice so we can hear their stories. Oftentimes black men in any space that isn't predominantly black male, um, they're typically, and we are typically silenced in some way. We're either silenced or marginalized. So having me on this podcast is a step forward so they can hear our stories. Um, giving black men a platform to talk about what their experience is and that attracts others and of course you know for the most part a lot of men are, are breadwinners at this particular point you got to raise the, the salaries too i'm not gonna lie now by the way raising salaries should be for men and women 
And so it should be for everybody. Uh, but if we need some sort of excuse to raise them, then use men as the excuse so that women could get that too. That's a good incidental benefit, I think. Uh, whatever. Um, I think so, so salary, giving us a platform. I also want to go with this third piece that I've really, really been thinking about. So I'm glad you asked this question. We are right to talk about the trauma that students of color experience in our schools, but there is, there is a significant amount of trauma that we as black male educators and black educators experience at the hands of the system that supposedly is supposed to be teaching our kids. So systems have to have a protocol in place to examine the trauma that they're visiting upon their employees of color and ways to rectify that. Because I would argue, and it's something that I'm emerging on, I don't have research behind it. What I have is my own experience and experience of many uh, men that I've talked to and the results that I don't think you can treat employees and teachers of color badly and teach children of color well. I'm not sure that can happen. Because what you do to one, I think you invariably do to the other. And so if we're going to change the experience of students of color, we have to change the experience of teachers of color. And that can only happen with transparency, accountability, and a protocol by which we can tell you the trauma that's visited upon us, and it can be addressed, validated, and rectified. One of the things that was shared the last time that I saw you, Josh, is there is a wealth of resources to bring into the classroom lesson plans to start these conversations, to engage in children of color, especially young males. Can you share a little bit about where their uh, listeners might be able to find those? Sure. It's a great question, Diane, and thank you for that. Um, Really, I think there's, there's, there's so many all around. I think the first is uh, the company that I work for, Unbound Ed. They have a bias toolkit on their website, unboundedorg. Uh, if you search for a bias toolkit, uh, then you'll find an entire PowerPoint presentation with slides, with references, that allow you to take a staff, a school, a district through this type of uh, understanding and training. I think about, uh, I'm a reader, so uh, I'm gonna mention books, but I think about Stamped from the Beginning, uh, A Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. That's a book that has fundamentally shaped a lot of the things that, that I believe. I think about Other People's Children by Dr. Lisa Delpit, who also wrote Multiplication is for White People. It's also by Dr. Lisa Delpit. There's, there's so many, different books and TED Talks that talk about this experience. Um, and that if you just build a community of learners around this concept of, of equity and access and anti-racism, I think you can begin to see change. And I think that's what we're trying to do. And I thought about this today. I believe if we're doing this right, we will build a community of learners around this work that changes us and puts us with a different disposition and capacity to create the systems that we need for the students that we love, or at least that we say that we love. And so I think let's start building the community of learners around this topic with some of these resources and having these conversations. And I believe we'll start to develop the capacity to serve our students of color like they need to be served. Let's shift gears for a second and talk about big data and algorithms. 
So much of what we do in schools is data-driven, yet the data that's collected comes from algorithms that are programmed by people. This means that inherent biases are built right into the system. How does this affect students of color? Dr. Coronel West recently said that we're in a school system where uh, the poor and the minorities get tested and uh, everyone else gets taught. Which is to say that, at least my interpretation of it, is that we consistently are measuring what students of color cannot do. And I feel that sometimes when we measure that, it continues to justify the belief that they cannot do. While we do need to look at data and scores to see how well students are doing, I think the, just the abundance of ways in which we capture data on students of color has gotten out of phase with what we want it to do. By the way, it seems that the data collection is all in one direction. We don't really ever report data of the teachers and the systems that are supposed to be serving these kids. We don't report on them. The data is always, here's what students didn't do, rather than here's what teachers didn't do, here's what systems didn't do. And I am a teacher and will always be a teacher, so I am not bashing teachers. I love teachers. At the end of the day, we can't continue to collect data on students without collecting data on the system that is supposed to be serving the students and think that we're going to ever change our opinions um, about these students. So I think that the data has to be more than one direction, and that will lead us to a nuanced understanding of what's happening inside our schools with students of color. If you could design a professional learning experience for a school to start asking the questions like, how do we look at the data that we should be designing for ourselves? Explain a professional learning opportunity that would help teachers move these needles? That's a really good question. The first professional learning opportunity I would say is, again, my company puts on something twice a year called the Standards Institute. And this Standards Institute is, is a week-long learning experience where teachers learn about themselves, their participation in a system that might be disadvantaging or that is disadvantaging students of color, and what skills and strategies they can use to stop that. And so um, I think that's the first piece. But I think a professional learning system, here's some of the components of it. Uh, you're going to have to have, I think, a, uh, a leader that not only has the expertise and experience of leading a system or a school building or department, but who has the character to actually um, indulge, see what's the writing on the wall, and actually look at what our participation is in that particular system. And so we start with the leader. Then the professional learning system has to be around experiences that surface our own bias and our participation in such a system, like the Standards Institute, like a book club, like um, uh, the, looking at TED Talks together and conversing, not only with ourselves, but across difference, which means across racial lines and also with the community. So having that conversation that is ongoing. Then we set goals that are around what the system needs to do and what teachers need to learn and do better, not necessarily what students need to do. We got what students need to do. We have the standards, we have the curriculum. So once we find out what we have to do as a system and also as teachers, then we can start the process of serving them better. And then it's about implementation and a cycle of observation 
that doesn't penalize teachers for making the wrong instructional decisions, but surfaces them and, allow, and tells them what they should do instead. Um, and then after that, we look at our goals at the end of every said year and revisit. But in each particular section of this type of, uh, of learning experience, it has to be um, buttressed and secured by learning. It has to be a continual learning process from learning about how we participate in the system to learning what the standards are, to learning our content, to learning how our, our in-class habits are disrupting our in-class objectives, to learning about what are some different ways we can lead and put systems in place, to learning about the racial history of our particular school community and what we've experienced. I've said this many times and I'll say this again here, in the end, what will save teaching is teaching. Um, but also I'd like to add, um, what will save teaching is learning. And so each part of this process has to be infused with intentional learning outcomes. So we're almost out of time, Josh. Um, but before we get to our last question, I wanna ask you something that I ask you every time I'm with you. Yes, because sir. you are m one of the most well-read people that I've, that I've ever met. I appreciate you. What, what have you been reading lately? I have no idea. It's too many things. It's too many things, Mike. You know that every time you ask me. Uh, okay, so when I share some of these things, it's, it's, it's going to be personal, so I warn you in advance, okay? All right, so one of the things that I'm reading right now is this book called Why Is It Always About You? Surviving the Narcissist in Your Life. So I am learning about my own, uh, my own tendency to be narcissistic and how I can stop it. So that's one. Another thing that I'm reading, or I just finished reading yesterday, is by Elizabeth Acevedo, and it's called The Poet X. And it's um, this uh, uh, Latino woman who uh, creates this work of fiction that I think is somewhat autobiographical, but it's all told in verse. So it's all told in, uh, in verse, and it's just absolutely phenomenal. It's amazing. Uh, I'm also reading the classic book by I think Peter Block called Flawless Consulting because I want to continue to get better at the way that I consult with people. So that's a great book. Um, and there's more that I'm forgetting, <laughs> but those are the three that are top of mind. That's funny because I ask him the same question every time I see him. Great minds, Diane. Great minds. That's true, Diane. That is so true. All right, Mike, one last question. So Josh, we asked this of all of our guests and we're gonna ask you to do it in only one or two sentences. Got it. If you could change education in some way to make the world a better place, what would you do? I would have all teachers explore their racial histories and how it impacts their class decisions. Thank you for joining us today. Please visit our website at edforbetterworld.com. That's ed, ed the number four betterworld.com for show notes and to learn more about inviting mike and i to lead a workshop for your teachers and don't forget to check the other podcast related goodies we'd like to thank josh parker for being a guest on today's show credit for music on the show goes to midair machine we hope you enjoyed today's conversation and that it gave you some new ideas and perspectives through education and action we can create a better world until we're together again, continue to dream big and affect positive change. <laughs>